Would you turn to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3, and I could only go through the first two verses. I think such a rich passage. And I intended to go through the first four verses, but I, I was just limited by just, just so much wealth of, of truth that we need to pay attention to in these two verses. <clears throat> so let us read together verse 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. We've been going through this letter, as you know, verse by verse, and it was as though we joined our brothers and sisters in the Colossian church. And it's as though that the Apostle Paul was among us and he shared his heart out to us in the form of this letter. And here we are, officially, have um, made our way halfway through this book. It's a milestone. Now, just to give you a bird's eye view, the first half of this book was about doctrine. The second is about deeds. <clears throat> so the first, more or less, is indicative, meaning it's about who and what Jesus has accomplished for us. And in the second, it's more imperative, meaning who we are and what we ought to do in the light of the doctrine that we've learned. First half is theology. The second is more practical. But I think as I've been reflecting on, on, on the difference between the first and the second half, nothing more satisfying than the following contrast. The first half is about Jesus being the object of our faith. <clears throat> The second is about Jesus being the source of our lives. So whether the first or the second half, the entire book of Colossians is about how that Jesus, our Savior, is all sufficient. All sufficient. It is such a Christ-centered book, so much. That if you read it carefully, you would think that Paul has committed himself that when he came to write this letter, that every breath he would take, he somehow has to pen down Christ, Jesus, Him, in Him. It's about Christ. In fact, let me, let me show you something. In that very first four verses of this chapter, how it's filled with Christ. <clears throat> so please look with me. It says in verse 1 of that chapter, you're raised with Christ to <clears throat> where Christ is. And in verse 3, 
your life is hidden with Christ. Then verse 4, Christ who is our life. And then again, you will be revealed with him in glory. Before every thought and behind every command, there is our Lord and, and Savior, the author of our faith. Jesus is the source of our lives. Paul emphasizes to us again and again and again how Jesus is all you need. Now, why, Paul? Why do you want to insult our intelligence and you have to repeat yourself so many times? I mean, couldn't, couldn't you just say only once or twice? I heard many people come to me and say to me in the past, you just say once. But why is Paul repeating it over and over again? Because in this fallen world, with our unredeemed flesh, we must know that we are very forgetful people. We must know. To be sure, we, we don't forget to breathe, right? Nobody forgets to drink or to eat. But when it comes to whom our soul is thirsty for, for you and I suffer with amnesia. We need to understand this. After we finish from our work, on the way home, we're committed. We turn on Flick YouTube and we listen to sermons or Christian songs. We, we sing and say, uh, Jesus, you are my everything. And I'm not going to sing it, but this is what we do, right? And we enjoy God. We exalt Christ. And, and that's great. But what happens quickly as soon as we open the door and we enter into our homes, eat food and it's burnt, kids are rowdy and disrespectful, and we say, we forget everything. And we say, man, if my family just respect me, maybe I won't grumble all the time. And we become easily influenced by the surroundings. Why? Why do we do this? We suffer from memory loss. Memory loss of what? Memory loss of this truth. That Jesus is everything your soul needs. You don't need anything. Anything else but him alone. So what does Paul have to do? He has to remind us time and again of how glorious our Savior is and whom we are in him. Now if you truly embrace this reality, that to have Jesus is to have everything, then what is the implication of this? How does this affect our lives? Let's break down today's passage. The cause, the command, and the capabilities. The cause. I'm going to read and dissect. Verse 1, and the first word says, Therefore, 
in conclusion, as a result of. That's what therefore means. As a result of what? He continues on and he says, if you have been raised with Christ. Now, just pay attention to this. Let's just do some technical work. This word if, that conjunction, it should have been best translated as the word since. <clears throat> meaning it's not a, a um, if as though it's a hypothetical statement. You know what I mean by hypothetical? Meaning Paul is not saying here, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have been raised with Christ or not, but maybe you are, maybe you're not. No, it's not hypothetical. It is a, a living reality. It's an actuality. There is certainty in this. And it's assumed. In other words, Paul is saying, in the light of the fact that you believers, you who are born again, indeed have been raised with Christ in the light of this. Now, what does it mean, have been raised with Christ? What, is that phrase, what does this phrase mean? Well, <clears throat> raised, resurrection, we know that... Um, one day after we die, we'll be resurrected from, from the dead. You know, at the time of the rapture, we'll receive our bodily resurrection, right? That's our glorified body. And many of us, maybe if you're 25 and above, you're looking forward to this, right? 25 years and above, right? Now, that's future resurrection. But this passage speaks of something happened in the past. You have been raised up with Christ. Just looking back in time. Now, it basically speaks of our union with Christ. Going all the way back. Brothers, can, can we fathom the, this awesome intimacy we have with Christ? The union. We spoke about it at length um, in the past. That we actually enjoy this deep, intimate, our Lord Jesus Christ, with the intimacy with our Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful. When were us as believers united with Christ long before you did good or bad? Long before time began. When you were but a thought in the mind of God. The scripture tells us that the Father chose you in Christ. It's how far back in time your union with Jesus Christ was established. Now, furthermore, beyond this, it, but here, when you were raised, when you've been raised with Him, it speaks about your salvation. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, You were also raised up with Him. Through faith. We were raised with Christ when we were first saved. Now, not only were we raised up with Him, let me give you something even more glorious than that. In Ephesians 2.6, it says, And raised, up, uh, raised us up with Him and seated us with Him, that's with Christ, in the heavenly places in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Beautiful stuff, if you actually think about it. 
once upon a time, your soul was dead. Dead to the things of God. Dead, dead to his mercy. Dead to, to his love. You were disinterested, numb to the things of God. Numb to your need for Jesus Christ. Rather, you were all consumed in your heart with self-idolatry. But the moment God breathed his life into your soul, he awakened you from your deadness and your union with Christ became an actual reality that you live now. Meaning you, if you are born again, you can actually experience fellowship with Jesus Christ that unbelievers in no way could ever experience him. How great is this news? How can we not be grateful and praise God for this immeasurable love? Jesus loved you even when you were drowning in sin. That union means he locked his heart with your heart. The Father picked you up from the muddy water of sin, raised you up with Christ, and sat you down in the highest heaven with Christ. Now, up to this point, it almost seems like too beautiful that you can write a poem about it, but what does it really mean? What is the significance of that resurrection of the soul? Let me give you two, two significances for, because of that resurrection. Because you were raised, you have been raised with Christ, number one, it means that death has no longer dominion over you. You, disciple of Jesus, you have eternal life when? Now. You were raised from the dead never to die again. That's simple. Second significance. Not only death, but sin has no dominion over you. The Bible tells us that when you were dead to God, you were alive to what? To sin. That is to say that sin was your cruel master. It controlled your every move. But when God revived your soul and raised you up with Christ out of the grave, you were freed from sin. Oh, how we... In a desperate need to understand what this means. That you are freed from sin. What does that mean? Does that mean <clears throat> believers, followers of Jesus Christ don't sin anymore? No. Resurrected souls now have a choice to either commit sin or to follow Jesus Christ. You have a choice. What does that mean? Let me explain to you what this means. 
before you were raised from the dead, no matter how decent and polite you were, no matter how sensitive your conscience was, your dark heart was chained to evil. That's what the scripture says. It was chained, shackled to evil to be your master. Now, what, what does that mean? An unbeliever would say, well, what are you talking about? I take care of my family. I, I pay my bills. I feed my cats. Every day I feed my cats. What do you mean? I'm chained to evil. Well, friend, it is not about what you do. It's about who do you do it for? Who? Do you do anything for Jesus' sake? No. And if no, do not for Jesus' sake, do for Jesus' sake. That is the epic and the foundation of all evil. Because if you're not doing it for Jesus, who are you doing it for? And so, the only choice that unbelievers have that you once upon a time, brothers and sisters, had, is which action your rebellious heart is inclined to do the most. But now, you have been raised with Christ. Jesus' resurrection loosened your shackles. He set you free from that dungeon of evil. And by the very power of God, He raised you from the dead. In other words, now you live in the light. Now every believer can sing, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. For every decision you make, you can now say, I am free to choose what my primary motive is. Right? Either self-idolatry, Or to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Well, what's it going to be? For the Apostle Paul, it's not a brainer. It's obvious. So we'll come to the command. So here we spoke about the cause, the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of the soul from the dead. Now the command. As a result of this, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, what does he say? Seek. Keep seeking. Since you have been so loved, since sin has no longer dominion over you and you have eternal life, if you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, then keep seeking the things above. Keep seeking the things above. What's the things above? The birds, the clouds. Our little boys, they always like to look up to the plains and they say, oh, two, what is it? Two turbo engines and whatever. Is that the seeking? Paul becomes more specific. 
And he zooms right in and he says, Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Brothers, when we seek heaven, we are to seek the one who is reigning in heaven. Very important. And you are to seek him, meaning we are to seek his power, his purposes, his plans and provision for your life. We are to seek his standards, his pleasures, his love. I love the amplified version. You can go ahead and read it in your home. We are to seek him to be our treasure. Beautiful stuff. We are to seek him to be our precious possession. Let's break it down even more. I want to dissect this. Please note, firstly, keep seeking. Put your index finger on these two words. Keep seeking. This verb is imperative, meaning it's a command. It's not a preference, brothers and sisters. Jesus didn't die, rise again, and raised you up with him only to add seeking the things above as an option in the menu. You know, you wake up in the morning and you say, hmm, let's see what will I choose to pursue after today. My own ambitions or the things above? No, brothers. Keep seeking is a divine order. It is not an option. You are to turn your faith into a telescope and through which your eyes are to gaze upon Jesus Christ. It's a command. Secondly, this command is in the present continuous tense. Meaning, keep on seeking. And never stop chasing after Christ. Always keep your head tilted back. Your eyes are looking upon Jesus Christ and be in pursuit of Him. Thirdly, please note that these two words, keep seeking, it actually speaks of labor and effort. The word seek here is not like hide and seek. It's not seeking in order to discover something. That is not what it's meant to be here. The meaning of this keep seeking is to actually seek in order to possess something, to grab hold of to something. And it demands your energy to be consumed in what you're seeking after. There is nothing passive about this. You are to agonize seeking after heaven. Please allow me to say to you who have resurrected souls, 
You were never meant to be a couch potato, all right? Apathetic to heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first, meaning first in terms of priority. In terms of your ultimate goal. The kingdom. His kingdom, his righteousness. Again, Jesus says the violent men take it by force. You were raised with Christ to be like a soldier with a divine mission. And what is that mission that you had when you were first born again? A quest for Christ and his kingdom. Done deal, it's settled. You don't get to have a say about what your mission is. You don't bargain with the commander-in-chief. He gives you that mission, and that mission is to see Christ and his kingdom. You're like a, a hunting dog, always tracking, chasing after the smell of Jesus' aroma, his fragrance to be surrounding you. And it really doesn't matter if... If you suffer persecution, sickness, or even your loved ones turn on you, you are never to stop seeking him until what? Until his life is fully manifested in your mortal flesh. Well, objection. What do you mean? Does that mean the Apostle Paul Wants us to stop working, be on Centrelink, and just all day long pray and read the Bible? No, brothers. It's about adopting heavenly priorities over earthly ones. It's about having your driving passion above all else. Is that this life of yours, life above, your life that is hidden in Christ, that life over there in heaven, you want to make sure you keep it healthy. What does that mean? It means that you say to yourself, I want to know that I'm a stranger here on earth. That my eternal home is out of this place. It's up there with my Savior and His people. And because it's such a, a short time, and then I'm going to farewell my pain. And my disappointment, soon I will say goodbye to my earthly possessions and dreams. And in heaven, forever I will behold Jesus Christ, who the scripture says, fairer than all the sons of men. Brothers, it's only a short while left. You better believe it. And Jesus is coming back. He said, I'm coming quickly. How quick? Quicker than you think. 
And therefore, because of this, you must consider your heavenly values far outweigh your earthly comfort. And you must live with heavenly perspective. Keep seeking means you say to yourself, I will assess every situation and trial and challenge against my heavenly life with Jesus Christ. This is what matters to me the most. What does this mean? It means that I will grab Jesus' eyeballs. And I'm going to look at all pleasures, all temptations, all my future goals, all my relationships through the eyes of my Savior who is now reigning in the throne of God in heaven. Keep seeking. And you will do that <clears throat> such that when the world looks at you, they will come to know that you have only one king to please, that is Jesus Christ, and you have placed everything. Absolutely everything at his disposal. That when others see you, Say, well, what sort of foolish decision are you making? You're downgrading your job. You're moving houses and getting closer to those people. What are you doing? Why are you making such foolish decisions? You say, I have a divine order from my king to seek him above all else. And that's all that matters. That's the command. Now the capability. What does that mean? Well, one might say, well, oh, I want to do this. With all my heart, I long for this. But how? How? I mean, let's get practical. How can I keep seeking the things above this way when I'm living in, in this perverse and, and, and twisted world? It's just too hard. Especially when temptations are everywhere and, and the pressure to, to compromise, to, to be apathetic is very strong. What do I do? Would you please turn to Ephesians? I want to show you something awesome. Ephesians chapter 1. This is really great. Ephesians 1, and I'm going to start reading from verse 18. Look what it says. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his, inherit of his inheritance in the saints? So far, two things Paul is praying for. And Paul is saying here, Oh, how I pray to God that the scales fall off your eyes so you can see 
not only his calling and his inheritance. Now something even more powerful than this. Verse 19. Look what it says. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Not just his power, but what is it? Greatness of his power. Oh no, not just the greatness of his power, but what is it? Surpassing. Meaning, this is something that is beyond greatness. What in the world is beyond greatness of, of the power towards us, to that who believe? Or in other words, just how great then is this power that is available to us? Continues on and he says, these are in accordance with, in other words, proportion to the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. And he goes on and he shows you the measure, the height of this power. Let me read it to you. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What Paul is saying here is to the degree that Jesus' power enabled him to trample over death... Pass through the sky, passing through the moon, the sun, the stars, ascended higher and, and much higher above all authorities, all the way up to the throne room of God and sat him down there majestically as the king of all kings to be seated at the right hand of God. You know what this means? That Christ has the highest power, highest honor. He has the right to judge the world. And he says, to that same degree, this power is made available to you, believer, in order to seek the things above. It's a lot of power, don't you think? A lot of power. How can you say it's too hard? What Paul is saying here, since you've been raised with Christ, meaning since you now have access to this super, extraordinary power, go ahead with all the might of God. That he invested in you. Pursue Christ and his kingdom. Chase after him and his values. Well, that's great. But how do I do that? How do I capitalize on his amazing power? Right? Well, Paul moves then to verse 2. And he gives us two commands. Now, two sides of the same coin are really designed to enable us to know how to seek the things above. They're not disconnected. They're very much connected. 
Now, in this verse, verse 2, that command is made up of two sides. Like we said, one is positive, the other is negative. In one hand, he says, set your mind on the things above, and on the other, we are not to set our minds on the things that are on the earth. Now, both of these commands... It's actually one, but broken down into two, a present continuous tense. Do you want to employ all divine power to to make your heart cling to heavenly realm? Way above worldly cares and really trouble? Do you want to live with eternal perspective? Somehow, arouse all your affections. That's what seeking the things above mean. You arouse all your affection to esteem Christ as the most precious thing in your life, such that you begin to pursue His values and His priorities in your life. Well, let me tell you the good news. You don't need any more power than what God already provided you with. You've been raised with Christ. You can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens you, right? So what do you need? You just need to to use the strength that God already given you in Christ. How do you do this? What does it begin with? In that verse 2, it tells you we are to always preoccupy our minds with the heavenly and at the same time stop being preoccupied with the earthly. Very simple. Now the words set your mind so that we understand what it means is to ponder, to keep thinking about You turn on that CPU, you think about heaven, you meditate about God, set your mind. Stop giving much thought to earthly and begin to fill your mind with heavenly. This is what Paul also said in Romans 12. Remember when he he said, renew your mind. What's the relationship? Why is this an enablement to seek? I want to give you a universal rule of thumb. You need to keep it in your heart. Get, 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 get this, put it in your mind, open your mind, put it in, get the key, throw it out, throw it out, and keep it locked in there. This is a universal rule of thumb. The way to control your will is through your affection. In other words, whatever consumes your affection the most has the final say about what you will seek after. Okay? And then, that's the the affection, that's the seeking part. Affection is very important in Christian living. But 
your mind is the gateway to your affection. Don't worry. We'll, we'll, that's what we're going to be focusing on till the end of the sermon. So I'm not moving away from this, but I'm going to give you the implications of that. So you can also say the opposite is also true. Whatever is absent out of your mind will be absent from your heart. And whatever is absent from your heart will in no way become your greatest goal in life. So I just said exactly what I said, but in the negative. It's a bit complicated. You need to give me examples. I'll give you three examples. And you can say, perhaps, these are the applications of the message. All right, well, example number one. If the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning is, let's say, turn on the phone, you check your bank account, you go to the news, click on the finance, Oh, Reserve Bank increased the interest rate again. Man. And then you go quickly and you open, I don't know, Commonwealth, and then you check your mortgage, and, he's like, oh, and you start doing the math first thing in the morning, and then for the rest of the day, you begin to consume your mind with money. And you give only little time, you know, I've got to do my devotion, and only just little time for your pondering upon heaven, if that is what you fill your mind with, what could possibly captivate your heart but earthly treasure? Right? Let me give you another example. Just a different example. You come to church all dressed up, Nice suit, nice dress, beautiful. You come, you comb your hair. But then, something strange. You begin to fill your mind with your brother's weaknesses. And you begin to think and reflect deeply inside of your mind. You may not tell people about it, maybe your wife and husband, but you just keep it inside of you because I'm not going to gossip. And then you say to your mind, why is this sister not talking to me? Hmm. Where is brother Joe today? How come he's not here? Where is his family? Surely he's got a bit of a, an issue going on. Hmm. You've got to really question his commitment, don't you? And then you, you, you bring it about, but in that, not in the same uh, vain, you, you would say, I'm, I'm concerned for Joe. I'm concerned. Really? And if you set your mind on your brother's floor, do you think that you will actually seek the things above? No, brothers. You know what you will be seeking? You will seek to criticize and you will seek to destroy your brother whom Jesus died for. What you set your mind on, that you will seek. Do you get that? All right, well, third example. Third example. How about you okay for another example? All right, good, good. I'm glad. Now, I hear people come to me from time to time, and then they say to me, 
Wes, I, I have apathy to the things of heaven, right? And I just, I'm just growing cold and I, I just don't know what to do. Well, guess what my first question always is? How's your personal devotion going? How's, how's your studying and meditating God's word? I'm not talking about just reading a book in order to prove a point to some brother. I'm talking about your own personal devotion, your meditation throughout the day. How's that going? Well, do you know what the answer always is? Hmm. What is it? I don't feel like it. All right. Well, what do you do in your spare time? I just guess I watch movies. I go shopping. I work in a shed. I hang out with unbelievers. Brothers, but that is even more of a reason why you should spend time meditating on God's Word. Think about it. How can it be that you fill your mind with the cares and the leisure of this world and somehow you think that you will activate the power of God? And then what? Your, your, your bones are full of fire for God. Really? Would someone, would, say, would someone say, oh, I'm so apathetic to the things of God, therefore I'm going to party all day long and then God will revive my soul. It doesn't happen this way, brothers. doesn't. If you use, I don't feel like it as an excuse for not having personal devotion. You know what you're doing? You're putting the cart before the horse. Because the reason why you have to continue to fill your mind with the things above and not be consumed with the worldly leisures all the time is precisely so that you would feel like you want heaven on earth. So what do you do when you're apathetic? What do you do when you feel that there is no power in you to seek the things above? What do you do? You resist that. How? You go ahead and you commit to personal devotion. On your way to work. I'm not talking about just a couple of minutes in the morning or even 15. I'm saying or even on your way to work. Listen to sermons. Listen to Christian songs. At lunchtime, meditate in the Word. Hang out with people that will help you to fill your mind with Christ. Learn, learn about his character, about his humility, about gentleness of Jesus and the holiness of Jesus. Or about his second coming. When, when the scripture says he will bolt out of the sky and he will slaughter his enemies. Learn about him who you ought to worship. Or his physical reign on earth for 1,000 years when nations will come and pay him homage from all the corners of the earth. Go and study about your inheritance in Christ that the scripture says does not fade away. Study that. Study, study your blessings. Find out. Work hard to find out 
How do I increase my eternal rewards? Saturate your mind with God's heavenly kingdom or earthly kingdom. The bottom line is this. If you want to set your mind on the things above, you've got to be consumed with the things above. Even in your prayer. In your prayer time, you've got to bring down this earthly request to the bottom of the ladder of importance. Bring it down. Instead, let your prayers mostly be about heavenly things. Yes, pray for the sick, but you know what? Sooner or later, those sick people, even after they get healed, they're going to get sick again. How else are they going to die? Pray for them. But more important, pray to God and tell Him, consume me with hunger for you. And then satisfy that hunger with your presence. Plead with God. Wrestle with Him like Jacob did. Tell Him, God, I will not let you go until you fill my eyes with, with the beauty of Christ. Until you consume my mind with his wounds for me. Let your prayers be filled with heavenly things. Set your mind on the things above. Ah, but no, not, that's not all. That's not where Paul ends this sentence. Not the things on the earth. You know what we learn from this? And that's the final thing. You know what we learn? The last application. But it's so important to address. Oh, I pray that this would peace right through our hearts and to sanctify us so that we can grow. This is what we get out of this. No one can savor heavenly things as well as earthly things all at the same time. You can't do, you can't have both. The command is very clear. They're mutually exclusive. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Then he says, the punchline, you cannot serve God and wealth. Why is this important to know? Because some say, I will seek the things of heaven. I will fill my mind with the things of heaven and Christ. But yet at the same time, what do they do? They're leaving themselves to be consumed with money and entertainment. They have one foot in heaven and the other on earth. One eyeball fixed upon Christ and the other fixed on the world. But Paul could not be any clearer. You've got to do A and stop doing B. One of the Puritans commented on this. I'll read it to you. It's, if it's a little bit hard, I'm going to explain it. The Puritan says, it's beautiful. The sweetness of spiritual pleasure 
is not perceived by those who have a longing after earthly things. You can't enjoy the sweetness of heaven and yet in the same cup you mix it with the bitterness of this earth. Brothers, this cocktail will only make you sick. What is the greatest command? With what? All your mind or half of your mind? All of it. You love him with all of it. So yes, you work, of course. Yes, you think about your future. Go ahead and earn money. Yes, do that. Wise is he who places all he has, including his thoughts and his energy effort at the feet of the King Jesus. And for the rest of his life, he would make it his goal, sole goal, to fill his mind with his Savior. Why? So that his heart would seek after him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, beautiful truth. Pearls of great price are condensed and placed in these two verses. We pray, Father, that the birds of the air would not come and snatch away those seeds. Protect your word in our heart so that we would grow, grow in repentance, grow in faith, grow in our fellowship with your son, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.